Let us pray. Father God, not my words, but yours. Not my words, but yours. Allow anything that is not of you to be forgotten, to be not considered, to be cast off. But that which is true, that which is grounded in your word, let it reside in our hearts. Let it even cut and, and cut to the marrow of some of the sin struggles that we might have in our lives. And we have so many before you, Lord. Allow the word to do its work in sanctifying us, in having us remember and run yet again to the cross, and to also just looking out at our world and being able to better understand What's going on in our society? What's going on in our civilization? What's going on throughout the nation? As they mock and they ridicule you and your word. All these things, Lord, and so much more, we need your abiding presence here today. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. guess for some last week, especially when we talked about the second commandment, there was an idea that maybe I didn't deal with some of the generational promises linked into the second commandment. I want to actually just suggest something about verses 5 and 6 in this passage of these generational promises of either curse or blessing in regards to people and how uh, they respond to the commandment of the Lord. And what I want to suggest is, and what I guess maybe the first thing I should do, is remind us that last week I pointed out how Really, the first commandment stands unique in that it is a commandment of relational priority. We are to put God first. He is our priority. And the remaining nine commandments, or nine words as the Hebrew scriptures call them, those commandments, they are actions. They help us in showing and in growing um, more of God's likeness and image in us to the world. And so when it comes to the comments that God provides in verse 5 and verse 6, um, I am of the opinion, and a great many theologians share this, that yes, while they apply to the second commandment, they also apply to the third of honoring God's name and, and the name of the Lord. They apply to the fourth commandment of honoring his Sabbath. They apply to the fifth commandment of honoring your father and your mother. 
They, they apply down the line of the table of God. And when you see cultures and societies, households and individuals take lightly the things of God, the generations are cursed that follow. And for those households, those individuals, those uh, nations that heed the word of the Lord, they are blessed. That there is a generational reality to these things. Actually, I would say, uh, referencing the baptism that the Lord had us tarry on for seven weeks, what these verses show is that baptizing an infant is an act of faith. It's an act of faith, actually, that God will honor the promises to the covenant household that is faithful to him. And it's not grounded in the child. It wasn't grounded in Austin Richard. It's a, but it's an act of faith grounded in the word of God about the faithfulness that he even brings up of his the individuals who are part of the covenant family that he will have extend through the generations for thousands of generations. Our God has established paths of salvation. And so it's a statement. What we just did wasn't a statement of Austin Richards' faith, but it's, it's an acknowledgement that Austin Richards is going to grow up in a household where he is uniquely blessed. He's uniquely blessed in the fact that he is going to see in his home more light through his parents and through his <coughs> believing siblings. And that light will hopefully, the Lord, we, we expect the Lord. We don't want to look at the Lord and, and, and look at him with doubt, but we expect the Lord to honor his promises. And so we had an act of faith. And as we looked at that first commandment last week, we saw the God who our salvation is wedded to. And really when it comes to the remaining nine commandments, we discover how we avoid having an adulterous relationship in our love for God. And if you're wondering how I can use that idea of adultery, it's because of verse 7. The word for jealous that you see in your ESV there is actually from the Hebrew word kana. And, it, and it's a jealousy in response to, as best as I can describe it, marital infidelity. But here's the unique thing about that word, kana, is that it's never used in the Bible at a human-to-human -human level. It's never used to describe the adultery from a human-to-human -human level. It's actually only reserved to describe kind of the, the passionate betrayal that God 
feels, uh, you've got to be careful in the, the word feeling, that God explains to us as a part of his character when he sees the reality of our sin. You see, we're all sort of like uh, the woman, ideally, if we're born of the Spirit, the, the woman in the Gospel of Luke who comes to Jesus when Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house. And, and we, and she comes and there's this beautiful moment in the Gospel of Luke where not only does she come to wash Jesus' feet with alabaster, but she's washing Jesus' feet even with her own tears. And, and, and Simon is disturbed and, and, and others are, are disturbed at, at what's going on here. And Jesus says, for those who have forgiven much, who are forgiven much, basically, the many, those who are forgiven of many sins, are forgiven, they also love much. But those who believe they are forgiven little, they love little. And so, part of our reality as saints is the fact that when you and I have renewal and repentance in the Lord, we can start realizing when people violate us by sinning against us, hey, we've been forgiven much. We're actually to look at the gospel itself and to say, hey, I know in the dark reaches of my heart I have done more evil than I should ever be forgiven for. And so I can move on and I can... I can forgive. And, th and that's kind of our Christian walk. And we're encouraging the Christian walk to have this reality. But this word kana here in the Hebrew, to draw it back, this is the thing about the betrayal that we have with God and our sins. God's never done evil towards us. And yet we betray him as the good bridegroom. God's never done something unkind to us. And yet we often sin against him. God's a God who has been faithful and loving and merciful and patient and kind. And so God's unique look at sin is different than how we move on from sin. It says something about... Uh, the unique reality of God. And so when you see that jealousy there, that word jealousy that God has for us, and that desire for us to not fall into a pattern of our lives of habitual sin, but fall into a pattern of striving for greater faithfulness, that jealousy there is, is grounded in the fact that God is perfect, God is holy. He's, we've, he's never done anything that needs he need, we need uh, to forgive him for. And so when it comes then to God's jealousy and why it's tied into the generations is God is warning us. If you take, for instance, idolatry into your heart, if we're, if we're talking with words 
that defame God, if we fail to keep the Sabbath, if we fail into honoring authorities in our lives, if we're talking about killing people in, in word, thought, and deed, if we're talking about the problem and sin of adultery, if we're talking about the problem of stealing, if we're talking about the bearing of false witness, if we're talking about general coveting, we need to soberly remember the fact that God has never sinned against us even though he is married to us. We have constantly defiled him in our actions, and so we need to not play fast and loose with God's moral law, because if we do, then not generational blessings, not generational blessings like we had for Austin Richard are showered upon us, but actually generational curses. I think this is really easy to see in America these days. We were the most blessed nation in so many ways, unique in world history of the last at least several thousand years, and we've squandered it. We've squandered that generational blessing, and it, and it doesn't mean we need to be pessimistic. God is always the God who is willing to renew and restore but we can see that in even our nation. But for the households, for, for the individuals that play fast and loose with God's law, there is a betrayal there. There is an adultery there that God is very jealous against, that he, that he frowns upon. That's the reason why I'm not going to go to, for instance, Grandview Medical Center after worship and start baptizing random babies. I have no idea what those households lift up as most important. Whether those households are, are desiring to conform their lives and to be made more into the image of God and to be made more into the image of a faithful bride. But it's also why I, I am willing as a minister and as, a, as an individual minister to baptize a child from a household that does desire to be faithful, that does have a credible profession of faith, because God has given that child promises. Things are, blessings are promised to Austin Richard for the household he's growing into. Because of where he is. And we should be a people who are optimistic But also, in appreciating verses 5 and 6, there's one thing I want to be clear of. God is not saying that all of our salvation is based on ancestral, uh, our ancestral links. And that we can be kind of indifferent, that we can't escape it. But the reality is, if we continue in pathways that make us uh, happy violators of God's law, then sin will continue to go on and to go on. And so this is why often in actually the storms of society, in moments like this, we have the Christian hope to see that as people get crushed under the utter godlessness of our age, we know that such storms of life 
as we can see from the Gospels themselves, how people cry out to the Lord for salvation. And that's why we're not to bunker down here at Church Road in Waxhaw, Pennsylvania, uh, but we are actually to engage. We are to find the voices crying out, desiring for a better generation, desiring for a better household, desiring for a better Lord and Savior, so that they, along with the Philippian jailer, who was at the point of wanting to commit suicide, might not only be saved, but them and their entire household. And when we do that, when we have that courage, we have the opportunity not just to change one generation, but not to change one soul, but it's a part of a root system for all those who have received grace from the Lord. So God blesses the generation. And so now we move on to the third commandment. God's name is not to be used lightly. We need to take care of how we use the Lord's name. And and often, how this commandment, this third commandment, gets boiled down into being is we can't use God's name as a curse word. Or if we're, we're very pious, even those uh, Jiminy Christmas kinds of, of sayings, we don't say those things. But that's actually not in the Hebrew what is the primary thing of this passage. And the warning is not to misuse God's name flippantly in a way that really pervades our entire life. Let me illustrate it this way. Occasionally there will be the Hollywood celebrity that, that publicly converts to Christianity and, and the media loves to run up to individuals like that and put a microphone before them and sometimes there have been, it seems like, genuine fruit, but most often time, what happens with their life? They slide back. They live in utter scandal. They live in ways and patterns that are worldly and godless. And that is an illustration of using the Lord's name in vain. And that actually, in the underlying Hebrew, is a larger idea behind this word here in this third commandment. You know, as will be fleshed out in the law, and maybe you're going to think this is barbaric at first, but if you use the name of the Lord flippantly in the Jewish community, and you were a poor representative in how you use the name of the Lord, you would put upon yourself, they were called to put you to death. For the death penalty. And when we encounter those passages, our first thought is to think, oh, those are barbaric. Those are barbaric ideas. And yet the New Testament church though churches rarely practice it rightly, for somebody who is using the name of God flippantly, they are to cast them out and cast them off. In our society, the Christian church has had great struggles with identifying 
when to do this and when not to do this. Just look at politicians. But the idea behind that is handing them over to Satan, a spiritual death penalty, in order that there might be a return and a renewal. The, really, that's tied into the third commandment. But also with the third commandment, this is a commandment that we can violate when it comes to having fear of witnessing, having fear of sharing the name of the Lord. I'm worried, I, I have a fear of what people think about me or might think about me if I say something, honoring the name of God. And so I'm going to let that fear of man silence me. That's a violation of the third commandment. How about the murmuring in the desert? We've had constant murmuring, even before the desert, of the people of God. Complaining. Finding reasons to, to distrust God and God's plan for them. And the pathway that God had set out for them to walk in. And we saw just a, a few chapters ago where they put God even on trial. They charged God with the, the crime of desiring to murder them. And they were murmuring against him. And Moses, they, they wanted to put him to death. And the elders oversaw this scene. They were violating the third commandment. They were speaking in a way against God that was unholy and unrighteous. They abused the sacred name of God. They had abandoned a quiet trust of faith and gave in to a public criticizing of God and God's chosen instrument in Moses. There are so many ways we can actually dishonor the third commandment that have nothing to do with just saying curse words. Have we ever failed to praise God for something good? Taking credit in our own strength, in our own abilities for something. Every good gift comes from God. The best of what's come to pass in our life is a gift from God. And failing to do that. And failing to honor God with our lips. In those moments, we are violating the third commandment. How about when our speech fails to be life-giving and lift people up, but rather it tears them down in ways that are sinful and wicked? When we have fallen into that trap, we have violated the one in whose image we were created in. We have violated the third commandment. We worship a God of God life whose word is to give life. And when we fall into patterns of gossip, of misrepresentations and slanders, we are breaking, in large part, the third commandment. There is more, because, because again, we're, we're God's representatives. We've already heard from before, in the chapter before, that we are to be a kingdom of priests. And yet we can see in the third commandment a problematic pattern of the fact that this sin is very easy for us to violate. We often struggle 
with the battle of our words being instruments of sin. And every idle word does dishonor, but we can do dishonor to the name of the Lord if we're not careful. And when you begin to look at the third commandment, not just simply a statement against curse words, but have more of a sense of what the Hebrew is getting at, of failing in words to be a representative and to represent the God, the Lord of life. It's then that we realize we need to run to the cross. We need grace. We need mercy. We need, we need to be reminded that we too have to repent and be forgiven of much. But we have failed much when it comes to the third commandment. And the good news is that at the feet of Jesus, we receive forgiveness for these sins. A full forgiveness. And he forgets our sins as far as the east is from the west. And then we have the fourth commandment. The call to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Of all the laws of the Ten Commandments, this is the most popular one for the New Testament Christian to claim we don't have to listen to this law anymore. And it's in part because I think the Gospels show a lot of pharisaical problems with how they honored the Sabbath. It seems biblical at first. Well, it seems biblical until you read the entire New Testament. Let's just read from the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 9. To clear up any confusion, if you came here thinking that God's death on a cross with this moral law of honoring the Sabbath day, that, that he made an exception for this one, uh, especially on Super Bowl Sunday, especially on, you know, when my hobby is in season or my hobbies, um, uh, I have an opportunity to go to this or to that. Let us read from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 9. So then, there remains, it's almost as if God knew this argument was going to be heard by the New Testament church, which I'm speaking in jest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, that sounds like work, uh, to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We are, as the New Testament church, too strongly honor the Sabbath. And while the book of Colossians will make clear that we have some freedoms, for instance, the early church, there, there was a debate on which two days of being the day of worship. Saturday and Sunday. We read in Colossians that, that Paul basically says, it doesn't matter which of the two Sabbaths you observe, but observe the Sabbath. Now, the New Testament church will move into a posture of embracing 
what's called the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation, Embracing Sunday. It embraces Sunday because when it comes to the resurrection, as John makes clear in his gospel, and also will make clear in, uh, in even the revelation that he receives from Jesus, uh, that Jesus' appearances happen on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, which was the day of the resurrection itself. And so the New Testament church from the, its very earliest days is shown being in the tradition of striving usually to celebrate on uh, the Lord's Day. However, um, for Christian polities that have gotten or, or want to have a worship day uh, after sundown on, on, or, or on Saturday, the New Testament gives a freedom to that. It gives a freedom to that. But we do know from the historical record, from, for instance, Pliny the Elder, who writes within a generation of the apostles, and he writes about the practices of the Christians, uh, and uh, to Trajan, but also we know from Justin Martyr, and we know from the Didache, that the early New Testament church settles on Sunday. Actually, Pliny uh, points out that basically every Sunday service was a sunrise service. They actually got to church so early that they, they would go before the sun ever came up. They would have worship for a significant period of time before the sun came up. And the reason why they had to do that is that for some, for many, who were citizens of the Roman Empire, who were slaves, Sunday was a work day. Sunday wasn't an off day in the Roman Empire. And maybe you're thinking for a moment, I'm trying to bring this up in order to uh, justify the idea of working on Sunday. I'm not. I'm not justifying that. That's not why I bring this up. But I actually bring it up to point out the following fact. The early New Testament church, in a way I don't think is often appreciated, probably had a kinship with the reality of those in the book of Exodus that Moses is currently talking to. Because in Egypt, their Sabbath day was not, uh, they, they were not given a day of rest. They were put under slavery. And so uh, the New Testament church really begins its own period of several hundreds of years of, of kind of not having a greater civilization or culture or society that will honor and give them a day. And yet still they worship in this day. Actually, in the book of Acts, there's that moment where uh, Paul preaches until midnight. Think about that. Think, think of the riots. Actually, we just clear out the room. If I started preaching until midnight tonight. And then he finally cuts it short because tomorrow, Monday, the second day of the week for Paul is about to start. But he preached until midnight. He had such a high view of the Sabbath that you could preach until midnight. By the way, as we bring uh, a Sunday service, an evening service to our worship pattern here at the church, remember that that is an opportunity, as an honor, opportunity to honor the Sabbath. And so God desires a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
But there is something remarkable about the word Sabbath. This word Sabbath doesn't start here at Sinai. It actually starts in Genesis chapter 2. And this is dangerous territory because I'm going to get into the English language and, and nouns and verbs. And, and there's English teachers here. And so that's always dangerous territory. But when the Sabbath is used in Genesis chapter 2, it's not used as a noun. It's used actually as a verb pointing to God. That actually the truest, the idea is the truest idea of Sabbath is a unique rest found in the presence of God. And this rest, as we can see from Exodus 20 here, is to be holy. It's to it's set aside time in order to delight in the things that God delights in. That gives us opportunity for fellowship. That gives us opportunity for worship. That gives us opportunity for hymns. That gives us opportunity for the preached word. That gives us opportunity for, for celebrating as a family or, 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 and teaching lessons. It gives us a whole range of opportunities. But all of these things that we dedicate ourselves to in the Sabbath is to be holy in the sight of God and something that is pleasing in his sight. In addition, when it comes to the full testimony of the scriptures, and even in Deuteronomy, we can look at this as well, in its second telling of the law, we are to desire this idea of, of rest even for the sojourners, even for those outside of our community. And we live in a world that we can sing the song, everybody's working for the weekend, but they don't know why they get a break on the weekend. What God has built into the model. And yet, there is a model, and there is a pattern with the Sabbath. We have been designed to, to acknowledge the sevenness of our week and the cycle and to take rest. It's amazing, by the time that, that Jesus comes to this earth in, in incarnate form, Almost every major civilization you can think of from a variety of continents. We're talking the Polynesians to the Aztecs to the Romans to the, to, uh, the, the Egyptians to the Babylonians. All of these cultures and societies have kind of fallen into the pattern of seven-day weeks. It's written on their heart. We, there, there's a rhythm to life, and we need to... Take a moment. We need to take breaks. Our, our weeks are often exhausting. And we often get lost in our weeks and lose focus on the things that are, should be of greatest priority. And, and the greatest priority of all, of course, is that first commandment. To make sure that God is our greatest priority. Not the eagles, not the fillies, not the, not the uh, you know, beer garden or what have you. That God is our greatest priority. And he desires one in seven. A day where we uniquely are resting in him. And when we do that, when we fight against that temptation of saying, oh, but I, oh, that sounds so boring, that sounds so uh, hard. God begins to share more of himself with us. Continues to grow us. I, I would guess 
that if our forebears in the early church could see the privileges we have, I mean, I just think about when Constantine and, and the later emperors just, just freed the Christian faith and freed them to be able to have a Sabbath. That they would look at our society and they, they would be just utterly dumbstruck of how little is required in our lives to get us to forsake the Sabbath. These people who would have woken up pre-alarm clock before the sun ever rose in order to worship God for several hours. Even if they were asleep and they had to go to work later. For, for us to finally have a freedom to have a day and to look at our civilization to look at our society, they would say no wonder no wonder why generation after generation after generation continues to be so cursed. No wonder why this nation has forgotten itself. No wonder why this has happened. You're not remembering God and what God desires, and what God's built into our design, and what God says is good for us, and what God, God desires us to do at least one day out of seven in our week. You've forgotten God. <coughs> you failed to remember the one who desires to bless generation after generation after generation after generation, the God that you can come to and you can bring your child to, and, and you say, Lord, I want nothing more than for this line of faith to continue forward. And the God who says, I want that too. We, but we would rather forsake that. Because don't you know what's on the streaming service? Don't you know what's on the, uh, don't you know the opportunity to go see this or to go see that? And when we do those things, we're, we're saying to God, God, you're not my priority. I don't need to spend time with you. I mean, seriously. Imagine if I went home today and I just looked at my wife and I said, just so you know, I don't want really, I, I spent like an hour with you on Sunday. Well, an hour and a half, I preach a long time. Uh, I spent like an hour and a half with you on Sunday. Son. I don't want to see you the rest of the week. I don't want to see you. you. You'd rightfully be able to remove me from the pulpit. But we say that to God. What does that say about our hearts? What it says about our hearts is we need to find more time where we're coming to him for our rest. To understand that this is not so much about the specific day, but the God who renews us in this day to look more like his image so that we don't forget who's supposed to be our priority, that we don't forget the one who is, who we are to remember who saved us with the outstretched arm. And we don't forget the God who desires from generation to generation to bless us. We're going to meet somebody in heaven that's related to us by like 40 generations, 50 generations. The line of faith
And yet, we so often fail to appreciate the God who has things for us that eye has not seen, that ear has not heard. We don't want to spend time with this God because, well, don't you know? Don't you know what I'm missing? And the problem with that is when we're missing that, we're missing the beauty of the cross. We're missing the God who is our Lord and Savior. We're missing the God who so loves us and has cherished us that in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we continue to march down these Ten Commandments and we see so much inaction in our life, He still took up the cross as an action of love for us so that we might be more deeply conformed to His image. And when we see that, and when we appreciate that, how could we not want to continue to be in His presence Lord's Day after Lord's Day? How could we not want to share that good news with others who might not have heard? What else would we be missing when we have a God who so loves us like this? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we don't like to say it publicly, but we often think the patterns of our faith are sufficient. And yet, in the fullness of this text, we have much to be humbled by. We thank you that you allowed your suffering servant to face ultimate humiliation so that we no longer needed to beat the breast of our body, crying out for our sins, but rather we could cry out and praise for the Lord and Savior who redeems us of every sin. Let us remember that. Let us remember that in a moment when we confess our sins before you, but let us remember that as we go forth from this place. And let our remembering of that cause us to desire to look at that mirror and to grow in greater holiness and more like your image. As we sing in Jesus' name, amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.